Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to ACOM's Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name is James Banks and I'm Head of External Relations in Europe, the Middle East and Africa for ACOM. Today, we're going to be talking about PFAS, or per- and polyfluorinated substances. Found in everything from pizza boxes to firefighting foam, PFAS are resistant to heat, water and oil. And with an ability to move through the environment, they can contaminate soil and water supplies. As a result, it's estimated that PFAS are now present in 99% of Americans' blood. With links to issues including cancer and kidney disease, the worldwide historic use of these forever chemicals has resulted in a public health crisis. Joining me to explain further and to discuss what's being done to solve the crisis is a global team of specialists. Firstly, joining us from Australia, we have Director of ACOM's International PFAS Programme, Rachel Casson, and the PFAS response leader for Australia and New Zealand, Gavin Shearer. From the United States, we have ACOM's PFAS lead for America, Rosa Gwynn. And finally, from the UK, we have Rick Parkman, ACOM's PFAS lead for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Welcome, everybody. Thanks, James. Thank you. So, Rachel, if I can come to you first, what are PFAS? What is a forever chemical? Correct the mistakes I made in the in the introduction, please. <laughs> okay, James. Well, firstly, PFAS is an acronym for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. So you got the name slightly ajar, but that you're pretty close. Now, that's a really big question. What is PFAS? It is a class of chemicals where part of the compound has a carbon backbone, so a carbon atom, where it is either fully surrounded by fluorine atoms or partially surrounded by fluorine atoms. And there's another part of the compound which is called the functional group. Don't get too caught up in the the terms, but these two parts of the compound have very different properties. So one part of the compound is the the carbon-fluorine aspect is hydrophobic, so it doesn't like to go into water. And the other part, the functional group that I spoke of, is hydrophilic. So it does like to go into water. So those two chemical properties make it very unique. And it allows us to use it in a really broad range of industrial and commercial applications where we need water resistance or fat resistance, staining resistant properties, etc. Because they are partially water soluble, they can travel really long distances and that can pose some challenges. I won't go into too much more of the chemistry other than to say they have been classified as a persistent organic pollutant because they meet three criteria. The persistency, and that's because of that really strong carbon-fluorine bond. So that means that once they're in the environment, they won't break down. They're recalcitrant. Some PFAS are bioaccumulative. That means once they're in the food chain, the concentrations can increase as you go up. And some have been shown to be toxic, There are a number of studies 
where the findings have shown a direct correlation between exposure to these compounds and adverse health impacts. But because they have these three properties, regulators around the world, around the globe, are very concerned. Before we go on, I do want to acknowledge the positive contribution that the fluorochemistry industry has had on our lives. The problem arises when we don't manage these compounds and we let them escape or we let emissions into the environment. And that's where we come unstuck. Rick, is it, where exactly would the... I mean, I mentioned pizza boxes and firefighting flame, but where would people have come into contact with these forever chemicals? Rachel touched on it. Used in a wide array of different industrial and, you know, domestic kind of applications. And, you know, think about you know, waterproofing weather gear. It's in food packaging. You've mentioned that. Non-stick cookware. You think about furniture goods in your household, you know, in order to provide a little water repellency or, you know, anti-grease staining. And food packaging is definitely on the radar. I think Denmark is introducing a ban on these chemicals coming into play, I think, next year. But that just maybe give you a bit of a flavour of the different applications. How does the forever chemicals on our packaging end up moving into the environment, even to the soil, into the water supplies? And how does it end up contaminating people? Different routes of entry, I guess, uh, through our waste, disposal of kind of the food packaging, landfills, for example, are a point source of emissions of PFAS chemicals leaching out over time. All the things that we've discarded and put into you know, the landfills, that's definitely one route of entry into the environment. Also, if we're making these products, of course, uh, it's the emissions from the, in, in, the industrial processes in making these chemicals, either directly through the air, air emissions and all their, their wastewater discharges, and then controlling it that way. So it's, it's a pretty widespread problem, then, I think it's fair to say. Definitely, yeah. It impacts on lots of different sectors across the board. Yeah, it's definitely a widespread problem. And I think that, you know, there's so many routes that this can actually get into the environment. And we're only just starting to focus on some of these. And particularly, the primary focus at the moment has really been around firefighting foams and the way that that disperses through the environment, through training activities and, and other things. But all those ones that Rick was mentioning around packaging and clothing and, and household waste all have an opportunity to get into the environment either through waste disposal or even just through coming out of the human body as the PFAS moves through the human body and then gets into our water systems and things like that as well. So there's there's a lot of different mechanisms and we're still focused primarily on firefighting foams with it broadening out to go beyond that. Because the firefighting foams are one of the the main proponents for entry for them into the environment because, you know, they're quite high concentrated form in the firefighting foams. When you talk about widespread, and by the way, I was sort of chuckling when Rachel said this can be a pretty sticky situation getting <laughs> them into the environment because one of the main characteristics of some of these PFAS compounds is that they're nonstick, you know. <laughs> but anyway, you mentioned even in your intro, you know, that they're quite widespread and you mentioned the frequency of detection of PFAS and blood serum as measured in the United States. So that's sort of startling to people when you talk to them about it. And you can read a little bit more in depth. But one of the good stories surrounding that is that, of course, since some of these compounds are no longer manufactured in the United States or in other parts of the world, those blood serum levels actually go down over time. Because as Gavin mentioned, you can excrete them. We don't metabolize them, but you can excrete them. 
But that said, I mean, there's some very startling findings. You know, in the early 2000s, people measured PFAS levels in different wildlife, including finding PFAS in polar bear serum. And and people were, you know, recognized immediately. This means that this is accumulating. Rachel mentioned this, bioaccumulating, because, you know, there's not firefighting foam being used at the Antarctic more than other places and polar bears aren't normally in contact with that sort of activity. But all of that said, we can't say that they're everywhere. That is not accurate. And people do say that. You go to conferences and and I sort of take exception to that. They're every they're in a lot of places they shouldn't be. That's for sure. Like drinking water. So how worried should I be? As the team sort of touched on here, these chemicals are persistent. They're hard to break down due to the carbon and fluorine bonds. Once they are present in the environment, they last for a long time. They have that potential to accumulate and bioaccumulate within different species. And that means that they are going to be with us for a long time since they've been manufactured and used. So that means we're coming into contact with these chemicals. They're in our bodies. They're, they bioaccumulate from being impacted on groundwater, that groundwater being sprayed on crops, then cattle or livestock eat those crops. We consume those animals as well, and it just continues to accumulate through that food chain. But generally, there is the feeling that there's no consistent evidence at the moment around some of the health concerns that PFAS have. But that is really focused on that we're not generally exposed to high volumes or high concentrations of PFAS, whereas some communities living throughout the world have impacted groundwater or are in more contact with PFAS than others. And those communities in those isolated sort of pools or areas are the ones which have the higher concentrations. And that's where we're seeing more of those health effects and the potential for health impacts to occur. Just to go on Gavin's point, it's really important to understand how you're exposed because it really can't penetrate the skin. There's a couple of studies. It depends on the acidity of your skin and so forth, but generally it won't penetrate your skin. The way it gets into your system is by ingestion. So drinking impacted water, eating fish and plants that have been impacted and that cumulative exposure is critical. That's the primary exposure point for humans. And I live in an urbanised city in Sydney. I've had my blood tested and uh, super low. I didn't know you had your blood tested. That's interesting. (laughs) I did. (laughs) One other thing, if I could, and how worried should James be, also comes down to what exactly are the toxicological effects of the few compounds that we do have those information for. And the truth is that most of the controls being put on drinking water are to protect the most vulnerable part of the population to the particular effects that those toxicological studies have indicated. And that particular group in society that's being protected would be infants in utero, fetuses, and then those infants breastfeeding and the parent being exposed to drinking water, as Rachel mentioned, with PFAS compounds in them. So we're all being protected to a very low concentration that is actually just protective for a very vulnerable part of the population. Yeah, that was how the U.S. guidelines were developed. Well, good point. That's just for U.S., yeah. 
But similarly, across the globe, uh, regulators have taken a very conservative approach and uh, have built uncertainty factors into the way that they develop these guidelines. And so they are making every effort to protect society to the best of their ability based on the current state of knowledge. And the levels seem to keep going down, don't they, as time progresses? It's, it's a downward trend. They're becoming more, more conservative. Well, and they're shockingly low. These are in parts per trillion, and, and people don't think in parts per trillion. Well, know. what is parts per trillion? Like that you're like trying to find one person in two global population data sets. <laughs> That's what you're trying to find. When you talk 70 parts per trillion or, or, you know, a couple of drops in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, you know, you've got to go and try and find those little drops. That's what you're talking about. So in perspective, it's uh, very small. How long have we known that this is a problem? About the I, 1970s, weren't they starting to pick it up in people's blood? And then the real yeah. concerns started at the beginning, yeah. the turn of the century? You, yes, you're right, Rick. The 1970s blood testing program was done for occupational exposure. So people working in the manufacturing and, and touching it and feeling it every day. And so that that was the, the first occupational study done. And there were some issues, so they put in some mitigation measures to try and control that exposure. It was when Rosa said that they did the global study of wildlife, one of the manufacturers did that in the late 1990s, found it in polar bears and went, hang on, this, this isn't what we wanted. And so then they started to disclose to the US EPA that they'd found PFAS, certain compounds, where they probably shouldn't have. And then the US EPA reached out to all of their colleagues globally. And then that's where they started to restrict the manufacture of some PFAS. And the, the terrible twins that they really focused in on was PFOS and PFOA. And they both have a C8 length compound. And then from an investigation perspective, when we're looking at from contaminated land investigation, this really only started heating up in the last sort of five to 10 years, but particularly off the back of some very large profile projects within, within Australia. And we started looking at these as now becoming part of a standard suite of analysis within our environmental investigations, probably from about 2015 onwards. So from that perspective, the investigations prior to that didn't always consider PFAS as a potential environmental or human health risk as part of those. But Gavin, let's also point out that Australia is ahead of other parts of the globe in this respect. And you mentioned 2015, but... In this country, I would say we're about three years behind that curve. A lot has changed in our understanding of the compounds themselves. But we're standing on the shoulders of giants, which is why this global coordination at AECOM is so important. We can learn from those folks who are ahead of us. And I think uh, other parts of the globe can project into the future how they'd like to avoid some missteps that were made. 100% Rosa, I think what we experienced here in Australia was very much at that ground level of how to do investigations and what the next stages of that would be and trying to understand a lot how this chemical moves when it is in the environment and there was a lot of complexity with that. There was also a lot of uncertainty around the potential environmental and human health risks to communities surrounding some of these sites where it really started to kick off. So 
there was certainly a lot of lessons to be learned that can be shared globally. And I think that's one of the great things about the team that we've brought together here is that, yeah, Australia did do a lot of that initial investigation and initial thought around how to do this these investigations but now you know you can see that that's just being shared globally and we're learning a lot from other geographies as well i think you know there was some certainly some very key studies that have been done in australia in regards to bioaccumulation and how pfas impacts different plants and vegetable studies and how that may also get into the environment through those aspects i think we also have seen that our sampling methodologies and techniques have changed which acom has developed a very great internal training program around how to sample on PFAS impacted sites using the right equipment because some of the equipment that had previously been used had been manufactured with PFAS chemicals and so they had potential to create noise in the laboratory analysis around that. So there's been a lot of fantastic work done which I think we're all leveraging off and developing a very clear understanding of how we go out into the field and actually investigate these chemicals. It seems to be that you, you sort of touched on um, there have been some preventative legislation brought in around the world. But is there, be, is there a solution? Is there being much being done about sort of cleaning up the problem, if you will? I've probably got the terminology wrong there. Rachel, is, how's technology, how's innovation helping? Everyone's after the silver bullet at the moment. I would say that there have been some precedent-setting remedial projects undertaken in Australia at a couple of the Department of Defence facilities where we've actually looked at technologies, implemented them, and then measured their success, and, and there has been success. Now, when you think about how, you know, what's the solution once it's in the environment, how do you treat it? You have to think about the media that you're trying to treat. So is it a soil or a sediment? Is it a surface water or a groundwater? Because there's different ways of addressing each of those types of media. And there's different levels of technology maturity out there. So there are some proven technologies where they've been undertaken at pilot or full-scale trials in the field. And they're usually the conventional technologies that we've used for other contaminants of concern. And they usually rely on separating the compounds, so separating PFAS from the water or separating it from the soil by soil washing or stabilising it, somehow binding it to a product so that it won't move or leach into the water and then travel so that you reduce the exposure risk. And if I think about soil options, there's really only a few <laughs> And it's very limited, and uh, it's limited to putting it in a, a lined cell and preventing it from coming into contact with water or stabilising it with a product. There's a number of commercially available products out there where it relies on the physiochemical properties of PFAS. to They bind to this uh, material and then it won't move any further. There's soil washing where you actually wash the soil or there's thermal where you take it to a facility where the temperatures can get high enough that theoretically it destroys the PFAS compounds. It breaks those carbon fluorine bonds that we're worried about. With water, the problems arise with water because we are trying to treat water to basically no detect, very, very low concentration. So we're trying to capture every single PFAS molecule. 
So again, at the moment, at the full-scale part of the spectrum, we're relying on technologies that look to separate the PFAS from the water. And there's uh, granulated activated carbon, there's ion exchange, uh, reverse osmosis. Some people are using foam bubbles to try and remove the PFAS because they like to stick to the outside of the bubbles. Some are looking at coagulation. They're all ex situ. And what I mean by that, James, is they're all done above the ground. None of them are done in the ground yet. And, you know, that's the holy grail. People are trying to get to that space. There's a lot of funding and investment in research that is looking at ways of destroying PFAS because we don't want to just hold it in one place for a certain amount of time and, and the legacy lives on. We want to destroy these compounds. So people are looking at thermal technologies. They're looking at electrochemical options, sonolysis, plasma. These are all highly intens- uh, energy-intensive technologies. So you really only want to use them when the concentrations are quite high. You don't want to use them in a scenario where the concentrations are low and there's lots of water because it just doesn't make good economical sense. Again, for water, it's all ex situ. It's all done above the ground. There's a lot of really great research that's being done on novel treatment technologies as well. And a lot of that research has been funded by the CERTIP program in the US, the Australian Research Council in Australia, and eLife in Europe, uh, where public monies are being made available to combined academia and consultancies or private entities to work together to try and find the solution. And I think you'll find there's a lot of good papers and a lot of good information that's about to roll out in 2021, showing a lot of success in this last space, this last domain, destroying the PFAS, not just separating it and putting it on another media that we have to manage, but actually destroying the PFAS compounds. And as a team of specialists, what are you doing? How are you uh, helping to solve the problem? Well, I've had the pleasure of coming in sort of not at the beginning. I don't know where the end is. My crystal ball isn't perfectly calibrated. But AECOM embarked before I was sort of a PFAS nerd on developing its own destructive technology, as Rich was mentioning. And we're at an exciting juncture in the development of that technology. And that's frankly part of what has brought those of us on this phone call all together is the fact that what we've been working on is no longer some Frankenstein-looking object sitting on a countertop in a laboratory. It's going to head out into the real world pretty soon. So that's exciting. And yet, here we are. You know, there's other parts of the problem. It's a complex situation that need some attention. And one of those is just trying to measure this question, where are they and where aren't they? How do you measure something that is at these low concentrations when you care, like in drinking water? And to that end, AECOM is focused pretty heartily on looking at some real-time field analytical capabilities. It would be a game changer. You know, we don't want to focus solely on investigating. The communities affected by PFAS and their water justifiably are concerned. And hearing that, you know, the government has shown up to do an investigation or some large corporation to do that, 
may not be as comforting and certainly over time becomes less comforting. Of course, there are mitigation measures to cut off that exposure. Don't get me wrong. But doing a better job figuring out what the problem is is going to take some innovation in all aspects of PFAS measurement, identification. Heck, we don't even know about the toxicology of most of these things. You know, how much of a problem is the problem? I agree with that. I think there's a lot more work to be done in the area of toxicology and risk going forwards that will certainly feed into, you know, our better understanding and and developing uh, future solutions. It's not unlike a community, though, facing that this might be an issue. They don't want to hear, oh, we're going to learn more about it any more than you and I want to hear, oh, there'll be a vaccine for COVID-19 eventually. Right? There's a sense of urgency. There definitely is. But there's definitely key considerations you have to make when you're selecting yeah. technology for treatment. Um, I know you started to talk about other innovations and that's fantastic, but there's not one jacket that fits everybody. So there's not one solution that fits every single site. And you might need to actually marry solutions together mm. in a treatment train to try and address the issue. But I think there has to be a recognition that different technologies are at different levels of maturity and that some still need to be optimised and and they need that flexibility to be able to be optimised. But we keep changing the goalposts on our contractors who we are expecting to, or or ACOM, to come up with the solution. Because as Rick touched upon earlier in the call, the numbers for guidance are getting lower and lower. The number of PFAS are increasing. So because they all have different chemical properties, not all of the technology solutions are working for some of those new chemicals that we're, we're having to look for and deal with. And we also have to recognise that as a community, that cost usually is our burden. It's from our taxpayer-funded dollars as well. So there's a disconnect where the expectation is on the government to fix the issue that, that they're using our money to try and fix the issue. So but how much do we fix it to? I think there's a, there's a disconnect there. I think we, we've kind of touched on this point, but I, I wouldn't mind exploring a little bit further about who in the world is responding well to this and perhaps what should governments or could governments be doing to help solve this problem? Well, in the, in the United States, and this is you know going back to something Gavin mentioned, a lot of the problems stemmed from the use of this firefighting foam, aqueous film-forming foam, as it's called, or AFFF, a shortcut. And that's largely used by the departments of defense across the globe. It's also used at airports. It's a standard in the United States at larger airports as well. My point is that the funding to solve the problem really rests on the shoulders of the Department of Defense and the funding through the U.S. government for that. I mean, that's separate from the other types of release like Rick was mentioning, you know, relating to manufacturing or disposal of household items. So you've got to kind of pick, I mean, who's responsible for the big part of the problem? You know, and if we're talking about a a widespread contaminant that, you know, we're going to manage to very low levels, I don't think it will surprise anyone. The cost is very high, very high. I mean, some of the early estimates we're in the trillion dollar range in the US. 
And that's and, Rosa. Exactly. Yeah. That, because you've got such a magnitude of an issue to deal with. That's why they're taking a very cautious approach in the States. And I can recognise that that's why they're doing it. Whereas in Australia, we're 10, 20 times smaller in population and in also in this issue. Like we have less facilities, we sprayed less volume. So our regulators and our government has been able to get their arms around it. They have made mistakes, don't you worry. But they've always tried their best and they keep going and getting through it. So I feel like the Australian level of effort has been more holistic across restricting importation and manufacturing, but also dealing with legacy of contamination and how you manage that and how you regulate that and protect the communities. I think you hit the nail on the head. And if you formulate the problem to match exactly the prior kinds of problems relating to contaminants in the environment, if you formulate the problem exactly that way and then apply the same methodology and and tools to that, then the solution is a very, very large dollar value. But if you do what Rachel is talking about and ask yourself societally, do we want to expend those dollars on that? And are there other ways to balance the response that are reasonable? I mean, to her point, these are taxpayer dollars. This isn't just money sort of floating from the sky. And when you use that money for this, it takes it away from something else. No yeah. question. And within Australia and New Zealand, we've had really great results from our EPAs, our Environmental Protection Authorities and Agencies, coming together across both Australia and New Zealand in what they refer to as the heads of EPA to actually develop guidance around this. So our government's been regulating it. The EPAs have been very um, forthcoming with trying to put information out to the community and to the industry in helping people address these challenges and move on with them. We have seen, as you were saying before, Rosa, the Department of Defence being that sort of first mover, that they've had a lot of issues from the size of their properties, from the uses of their properties and firefighting activities and training throughout there. So they've been one of the ones that have really moved first because a lot of the contamination has been associated with both on-site and off-site risk. So we're seeing them responding to it in a really positive way to try to address community concerns. We also have other sectors like the aviation sector, which have had to develop their responses to more of the expansion of airports. So they've been undertaking training and, and have stockpiles of AFFF and, and PFAS chemicals, and they've needed to continue to expand the airports due to the demand that has dropped obviously recently, but due to the demand of, of travel and flights. So they continue to encounter PFAS impacts in both soil and groundwater as those expansion works take place. We do see other industries and sectors like oil and gas and manufacturing, which are doing their own investigation. They're looking into remediation. They are still watching some of the bigger players, particularly defence, to see how they will handle it, what remediation technologies that they will bring to the market or the industry will bring to the market to help support those sectors like defence. So we are very much in Australia and New Zealand being driven through regulation and also through some really solid work of some of the sectors taking the first step to looking into developing solutions for themselves and for the community. Am I right also that in Australia you have a bit more of a, there's an element from the regulatory standpoint of more disclosure with the general public as well? They have to be more upfront 
with yeah, the communities about what's happening and what's going on uh, and reporting back. Yeah, in, in certain states, Rick, that's definitely true. There's a duty of disclosure. There's That's becoming more prominent in other parts of, of Australia when environmental acts are changing as well. That is something that I think we're seeing consistency around our EPAs with making sure that that is going to occur if it's not occurring now to occur very soon in the future. Part of what you're saying there, Rick, is you know, true. If you have to report, a duty to report, then that becomes public and then people will start asking you questions. So you do need to stay on top of the issue so you're not seen as a polluter that doesn't care. But at the federal level, they're doing it automatically. Yes, Rachel, because it's the right thing to do. You're 100% right. And that's where being the first mover has been difficult generally for the Department of Defence because they've had to make it up to some degree as they go, but they have seen the need to do it. So they weren't they weren't driven necessarily by regulation at that point in time to do that. But, you know, Gav, you make a good point, And I say this with my clients and with people who are working on PFAS projects all the time. It's like we don't know what's going to happen with with regulations in this country. I can't. And there kind of isn't a federal promulgated regulation. There's just a drinking water advisory. So different states are doing what they need to do. And the state values are different. So cleaning up in Wisconsin would be different than cleaning up in Minnesota, even though they're right there. It's like building a plane while you're flying if you're doing a project <laughs> that's nationwide. I can't imagine. I mean, and that's one of the good things about Australia. We've just got one set of guidelines and one overarching framework to deal with. We, we haven't also touched upon the regulation of AFFF globally, which has been different um, in different jurisdictions. But in Australia, there's some states that have prevented you using AFFF. They want you to go to a fluorine-free foam. And mm-hmm. some firefighting clients have done that automatically without even being pushed. But there is a recognition that the performance at the moment isn't as good as an AFFF. So you do wonder... Yeah, about the and, risk. <laughs> yeah, and hey, that. Rach, you know, if it's your grandma on the airplane that crash landed, you're going to want the good stuff, right? Mm, I mean, yeah, you are. You don't want to hear, oh, well, you know, some person's going to have an extra long kidney crease or something, you know. <laughs> okay, and there there goes your beloved Meemaw, you know. Well, it, it's not just those big crashes as well, Rosa. Have you how many times on the news lately have you seen fires that they haven't been able to put out for days? And yeah. that black veil of smoke just wafting over communities. Well, well that's probably what the damage is like. It, you know, inhalation of particulates is a pretty instant problem, especially <laughs> if you're in a vulnerable population. But that's why this is so exciting is because it's really complicated. I mean, if it were easy, it would have been solved 20 years ago. And it's evolving as well. The, the understanding's evolving, policies evolving, regulations evolving. It has to, you know, for solutions to come to fruition, workable solutions to come to fruition, it's about all of those players coming together, understanding yeah. the science, developing the policy, developing the regulation. Yeah, yeah making mistakes and writing your, your travel on the pathway as you discover them. Yeah. Yeah. The pace of change is head <laughs> spinning sometimes to keep <laughs> up with it all. But it's like nothing I've seen in my many years in this industry for any other contaminants. And the level of sharing, as you touched upon, I think is astronomical. I sometimes say, well, you know, back in the 90s we or 80s, we, we learned about chlorinated solvents or fuel spills and we started to line <laughs> tanks. And then we learned how to clean up groundwater. And we learned how to install wells and all these skills that we learned for environmental uh, 
science, investigation, cleanup, remediation. And then it's sort of like this is our PhD defense (laughs) contaminated environment problem. It's like, oh, okay. well, now that you've taken all that coursework, society, here's this one. What do you make of that one? (laughs) And you're like, whoa, going to think on my feet. I'm going to bring what I know. But I think we're going to have to bring what we don't know, too. That's why (laughs) we need some newbies also, youngsters. Definitely. Just before we wrap up, I'd just be keen to to know what are the next steps, uh, both from an ACOM perspective and also a global perspective. And also, and I'm sure this is a very difficult question to answer, but is this a problem that is going to be solved or is it something that is just going to run and run? Well, James, I think the next steps from an AECOM perspective are really clear. This group has come together to focus on developing a technology which is going to help solve the problem of PFAS within water and within liquid. So we have developed a technology trademarked as defluoro, which uses electrochemical oxidation to break the carbon and fluorine bonds using low energy to separate those bonds and effectively destroy PFAS. The focus that AECOM has got on the moment is very much taking that technology through to final development and through to a stage where we can actually offer that to our clients as a solution for them to use on site. As Rachel touched on before, there are so many different options either that have been developed or are being developed and are at different levels, but it's likely that it will come down to a combination of options to solve these problems. So the fluoro is really great in many aspects, and one of those aspects is that it can be coupled with existing separation technologies. As Rachel touched on, many of these technologies take those PFAS-impacted materials and separate the PFAS out of those and concentrate that down. That's where you then need to use facilities like thermal plants to actually destroy that PFAS that's in the concentrate, whereas the fluoro can actually be taken out onto site and close the loop and destroy PFAS within the concentrate while on site. Alternatively, with higher concentrations like AFFF or spent AFFF from hangar dispersion testing and those sorts of applications, defluoro can be a standalone technology to actually destroy PFAS while on site and offer a more cost-effective and alternate solution to traditional approaches such as thermal incineration. So I think AECOM's view is to continue to support our clients and the industry in undertaking PFAS investigation work and developing better and more cost-effective techniques to understand the issues of PFAS within the environment. But we are also taking that leap into where we see the next stage of this going, which is remediation and trying to get rid of this issue on these sites once and for all. And that is where we have significantly invested in a technology that we have developed being defluoro and working with our clients to trial that technology on site and take that through to the next level. So I think from an AECOM perspective, that's where our focus is on. The next ventures for filling in data gaps are air emissions, Mm. working out how to sample them, how to analyse those samples and how they move in the environment is a space we haven't really invested in yet. I see that as a the big factor. No, yeah. I agree, because actually understanding Ooh. the background is actually important, and also in terms of allocation of responsibility as well. You kind of have to have a good understanding of what the background levels are and what the contributions are that you see out there in the environment and who's who's caused what. But hey, you know, 
we start at the basics, this gets into the groundwater, and then it turns into, well, it comes out of your wastewater treatment plants. But I guess I was going to step back. James was asking about, well, where do you where do you see things? And I think we see a lot of opportunities to do exactly what we're capable of doing, and that is sifting through the information and for the particular client with this particular situation at hand, for that client, we bring what is most appropriate. We're agnostic to technology. We have one we would like to have work but we want the right one for the problem. And same as what Rick's mentioning, whose problem is it? I think the future is going to have all of those questions being an intense focus in different ways and different balances at particular sites. But I'll tell you one thing. Right now, there is nothing more important to people than having clean water to clean their hands. Because we're sitting here with this global pandemic, and we know for sure that's one way to protect ourselves in an acute sense. PFAS yeah. is a chronic problem. We can actually think about it, but not having clean water, which let's just say, you know, those of us talking on the phone today are living in the privileged parts of the globe where we kind of take that for granted. PFAS is part of that clean water question. And I think we, we need to, Pack that all into what we think of when we think of how is society going to manage the PFAS situation? How are we going to manage it? Rosa, I think that is a, an, an excellent and very interesting point to end on. It's a fascinating uh, subject and a discussion that I've really enjoyed being a part of. So thank you very much uh, to Rachel, to Gavin, to Rosa and to Rick for, for sparing some time today to talk to me about PFAS. If you're interested in reading more about the subject, I'll put a few interesting links in the show notes. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please subscribe, leave a review, and of course, tell your friends. I will be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Talking Infrastructure. Until then, take care and goodbye.